Hello, and thank you for joining me for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share their personal and professional experiences, reflections, their big ideas in ways that never quite get represented in this way in the standard academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. And today I'm very much looking forward to talking with Professor Bryn Austin. Professor Austin is a social epidemiologist and behavioral scientist. She is professor of social and behavioral sciences at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and research faculty in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Austin is also the founding director of the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, commonly referred to as STRIPED. So it's really a pleasure to have you join us, Bryn, and thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we get started, Bryn, I thought maybe we could just unpack a little bit the reference that I made to your being a social epidemiologist and behavioral scientist. What what does that mean? What is a social epidemiologist and behavioral scientist by way of getting started? Yeah, well, epidemiology is a field that grew out of medicine in in many ways, sort of looking at medical connections, biological connections, and the kind of the worldview that was brought to the field of epidemiology often was pulling mostly from these kinds of uh, phenomenon, biological phenomenon. Then as epidemiologists working across disciplines with social scientists realized there is so much more we need to know about our social world and how that shows up in population health, community health. Social epidemiology grew from that as a way to bring social questions, social theory, social understanding into our our larger understanding about what affects population health. And most importantly, from a public health perspective, how do we improve the health of communities? Mm -hmm. And and behavioral scientists refers to specifically looking at human behavior in this epidemiological context? Yeah. So behavioral sciences does bring in a lot about our relationships with each other, our behavior in a, in maybe a mechanistic sense, of course, someone is smoking, drinking, walking. However, so much about how we engage in these behaviors has to do with our social relationships and our social environment. Mm -hmm. So that's where the two come together very nicely. You know, often when I'm giving a a one-on-one on public health to folks, I'll say where Clinical medicine often or other kinds of clinical fields are focused on -on one-on-one. How do you help this individual? In public health, we're always thinking on the neighborhood, community, state, or country level, always thinking on a large scale, what kind of changes we can make to improve the health of whole communities. Mm -hmm. So you've got a, a big sweep right? You're looking at populations and trying to understand what's the social context, how does that impact our interpersonal relationships, the behaviors we engage in? Uh, And when did you start thinking about these ideas? How did you get to that, this area of work? Oh, gosh. Uh, 
I, I didn't know it, but I think it was very early high school, college. I was starting to think in a public health kind of a perspective, but I didn't even, I'd never even heard of public health. I didn't know that was an option. So actually when I went to college, I just signed up. Yeah, I'm pre-med. I'm going to study to go to medical school because I knew I liked science. I knew I liked biology and I thought that's the only thing you do with it. Uh, And then during college, the more social theory I took, uh, social economic theory, history I took, I realized just how much more there is to thinking about our experiences in communities, inequities across communities, and the kind of interventions or changes we need to make as a society. It wasn't actually until several years later that I even heard of public health. After that, after college, I actually went into journalism. I worked Uh in journalism for about five years. And then I was uh, on a trip with my father in Thailand, actually, where he was working for a year. And I met some colleagues of his working in public health. And the light bulb went off. They told me what they were doing. And I realized, oh, my gosh, it's all coming together. My interest in social theory, in rights and civil rights, but also health and science and biology and public health brought it all together. Fabulous. So you said you were in Thailand? Yeah. Uh My father was a water engineer, so he helped create clean water systems all over the world. And he had a year he was working in Bangkok and I had some time in between jobs. I figured what better way to spend that time. I went and lived with him for a few months there. And um, we thank goodness for the opportunity to meet his colleagues in public health so that I could see how it all came together. So interesting because really, when you think about it, your father being a water engineer, is that how you phrased it? Is a public health servant, right? It clean water is like, let's get to the basics of public health. I know. I was 27 years old and my father, uh, I knew what he did for his work, but he always referred to himself as a civil engineer or, uh-huh. or, or water systems engineer because he went to engineering school. That's what his degree right. was in. I thought that's what engineers did. I had no idea that there was this whole field. I mean, thank goodness now in undergraduate programs, they have public health classes. So people like a future me, if I were a young person now, would have figured it out a lot earlier. Right, right. Yeah, I I think uh, in my case as well, when I was an undergrad, there was not an undergraduate degree in public health. uh, And now it's one of the largest majors at at Johns Hopkins where I went to school. And so- He's looking at clean water and you bring a whole nother layer back to this idea of social epidemiology, that it's not just about the physical world. It's, it is partially about the physical world, clean water, uh, sanitation, right? We know from the foundations of public health, how important they are in, in impacting our health, safe cities. Uh, but the social piece of safe cities, of social engagement um, is the the way in which you decide to situate yourself in epidemiology. Yes. Yes. I, I, you know, my mother actually was a mental health professional so Mm -hmm. that between the two of them, they brought in important elements of what my career eventually uh, became. And -hmm. then I think also from my own personal experience, the ideas of civil rights, social justice was very personal to me. I came out at a young age as a lesbian and early on was aware of all kinds of stratifications around uh, power differentials. And also my family was very anti-racist and I got these messages at home too. Uh, That's where in college I got to do more and more of that work. 
the AIDS epidemic actually was just coming up while I was in college. And when I got out of college, it was devastating the gay community at that point. This, I think all of this together is what brought this uh, combination of the, the rights, the justice, the equity, while also bringing in the science and the the focus on our relationships and responsibilities to each other is part of humanity. So you're in Thailand, the light bulb goes off. Yeah. This is what I want to do. How did you get from Thailand to actually studying public health? And where did you wind up? What did you do first when you when you landed in, in your course of study? Yeah. Well, I, when I was in Thailand, I was still in my journalism career. I was between jobs. I had been managing editor at The Advocate, which at the time was the LGBTQ, although at the time it was just uh, G and L, uh, <laughs> just how those acronyms evolve. Right. Uh, I was a managing editor at The Advocate News Magazine. I left there, uh, spent some time in Thailand. My father met uh, professionals in public health, came back, went back to journalism. Uh, but I knew I wanted to go into public health, but as a health journalist. Uh -huh. So I got back. What I did, I sat down and I took the GREs and I submitted my applications to do a master's in public health so that I could then get a two-year master's and then go back into journalism as a health journalist specialized. The reporting on AIDS at the time, on reproductive rights, lots of issues were, were very highly sought after and a lot of coverage. And I saw myself doing that. Mm -hmm. So I got to public health school, started studying in public health, finding out what it was, what it was like, the whole world of research and realized, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave and go back to journalism as much as I loved it. I love journalism, but I just loved getting so deep into ideas, getting very deep in, in ideas to really understand systems. Uh, and I decided to stay and apply for a doctorate because I knew I wanted to do research. Mm-hmm. And so where did you do your doctoral work, Bryn? I did both my master's in public health and my doctorate at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh -huh. And the department at the time was called Health and Social Behavior. Mm -hmm. It's the same department where I'm now faculty. It's, uh -huh. it's gone through a few names. Okay. So, well, and probably has the names reflect the evolution of the field in an important way. I think at the time when the department was called health and social behavior, there was a lot more emphasis on the idea of behavior being individual or maybe dyadic, mm -hmm. uh, that it's about we need to change individuals' behavior. And I think that was really the preponderance of the education that I got, not exclusively, but a lot of that, even whether it was epidemiology or if it was program interventions, is a lot of focus on that individual. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively so, but too much. I would say mm -hmm. the, de the department and the field has changed substantially in stepping back, stepping back, stepping back to see how do, do the, the behaviors, how do the people's experience, their health experience fit into the structures around them, political, mm -hmm. uh, media, economic, uh, all kinds of uh, geographic, climate change. You know, all of these are coming in as part of our understanding of public health. Fantastic. So you it starts to crystallize for you. What were the early investigations, the early findings that you had as you put together this world of public health, eating disorders, prevention? I'd say my early work was in the area of uh, 
work is happening in among my professors in promoting healthful nutrition and healthful physical activity with young people. Uh, they were not so much thinking about eating disorders, but it had a little bit of awareness, uh, like awareness of weight stigma that they need to be careful of that. I mean, thankfully, they had that much awareness so that I could step in and say, you know what, this work around promoting healthful relationships with with food and activity among young people, that could be protective around eating disorders. Let's take a look. Let's mm-hmm. take a look in the in the work that you're building. So as a doctoral student, I had a, a really a wonderful opportunity, thanks to my professors, to be able to bring a new lens to an intervention program that they had developed through many years of work. What we found is that the intervention they developed is called Planet Health for middle schools, was, was effective in promoting healthful nutrition and activity, especially more so in girls than in boys, but it was working for girls. And then what I was able to bring to that was new analysis to see how is it working in terms of preventing some of the onset of eating disorder symptoms. And what we found is that Planet Health cut that risk in half over a two-year period of the as young people move through middle school. It cut the risk in half. Wow. That's dramatic. So yeah. let's lean into that for a minute because I know you've done some subsequent work looking at risk reduction and prevention and the cost effectiveness of these programs. And, you know, we talk a lot about access to mental health care, that there's a shortage of clinicians and that it's very expensive. And that as much as we advocate for parity, it's still very hard to define parity and ensure that there's parity and ensure quality of care. It's actually waiting till they are in enough distress or the conditions are such that they seek treatment for a disorder that they've probably had for a long time. And we talk about all those costs. Yet when we talk about prevention, we also talk about costs, right? And people say, oh, but it's eating disorders aren't that common or eating disorders, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money on a lot of kids who aren't going to be impacted. You've got data to say otherwise. What what would your data tell us about the wisdom or the cost effectiveness of these prevention programs? Yeah, our research has gone in a few different lines around the economic impact, the social and economic impact of eating disorders. Our interest in being able to put a dollar figure on that is so that we could then evaluate prevention programs screening and then prevention, primary prevention programs for what the savings will be, both in lives and in dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've found baseline of the cost of eating disorders to the U.S. economy, $65 billion a year. That's billion. $65 billion a year is the cost of eating disorders to the U.S. economy. This is a recurring cost every year, $65 billion. And that would only increase, likely increase with the pandemic, increase over time with inflation. Now, anything we can do to prevent the high cost of eating disorders is going to be savings for families, for workplaces, for society, and of course, most importantly, for the individuals affected in in this way. These costs, I want to mention here, the costs of eating disorders are right on par with other behavioral health, mental health conditions. Uh, Parkinson's disease is, is a kind of condition that's gotten a lot of research to estimate the cost. That's actually coming up of somewhat less around uh, 56 billion a year. So Parkinson's doesn't incur the cost that eating disorders do, but it's substantial still. 
schizophrenia has been costed out by economists a few different ways. And eating disorders fall right in the middle of that range of what the estimates are for schizophrenia. Clearly a very severe mental illness, schizophrenia, but still eating disorders, which are also a severe mental illness, are coming up with comparable costs to the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. We've brought this economic work now into our prevention and cost effectiveness type analyses. And what we're finding is we've got some effective preventive and effective screening techniques that can be used in clinics and schools. When we cost out these programs, all of them are cost savings. And some of them actually have impacts that are comparable to other things we just take for granted. Some of the screening we take for granted around uh, uh, reproductive health, mm-hmm. the, the, the protective effects of some of these interventions would be comparable to some other kinds of screenings that we already just take for granted. Other kinds of interventions we take for granted, uh, preventing some kinds of substance use and other mental health issues. I think the key take home here, though, is that we need these kind of data, which is why Striped is a research program. It's a training program. It's a research program. And we're trying to very strategically choose the topics we go into depth, knowing it's going to be useful information to inform evidence-based policy. So that's where we put that, that premium on is economic studies, the cost-effectiveness type studies. We've got to have that kind of data to inform effective policy. And when you're looking at you said 64 billion? It's almost 65 billion. About 65 billion. When you're looking at a number like that, the you get to that at, in terms of actual healthcare cost and lost productivity? Exactly. When we this we used a method that's very common in costing analysis of different health conditions or different phenomena. They take into account healthcare costs. Of course, that's part of it, but that's not it. And that's not even the largest part of it. With Mm -hmm. eating disorders in particular, it's productivity losses. So that's cost to employers, families, individuals, because of not being able to work, being impaired at work, not being able to have a job, reduced educational achievement. All of these end up in in, uh, cascading into productivity losses. That's the biggest chunk. That's about two thirds of the costs of eating disorders. The reason for that is because eating disorders hit people in the prime of their working life, the prime of their education and working life. That's what's different about some other conditions that onset later in life uh, that meant someone may have had many productive years, uh, conditions onset later, it's going to come out a different costing of the when you use this kind of calculus. Eating disorders, the prime of people's working lives, a substantial impact on productivity and the total costs of eating disorders. Right. Right. So important. And so you, we've got really good data. Okay. Prevention is, it works, it's cost-effective and it will ultimately to society be a economic savings. So there's sort of this abstract idea of return on investment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's all of the other aspects of return on investment beyond economics of quality of life, of social mm-hmm. fabric, of uh, reduced mental health stresses and risks for friends and loved ones, et cetera. So what gets in the way? Like, why, why is this a hard sell? 
Well, I, you know, I think in the, the eating disorders community, as the research was building, the academic community, community advocates coming together over the last few decades, there's been a real focus on with, within, within our community, uh, working with other researchers like ourselves. People outside of eating disorders often really didn't understand it. It wasn't being covered in schools, certainly wasn't being taught in public health schools, very little attention in, in other kinds of schools. I think what that did is made our field more insular than was uh, helpful for us. Uh, you know, when I was a, a president for, of the Academy for Eating Disorders for a year, uh, 2019 to 2020, so during the beginning of the pandemic, one of my goals for that year and, and the adage I began with is we need to engage with the world to change the world. And what I my one of my top priorities was to make sure we were doing everything we could to engage with policymakers, with other disciplines, with uh, with the community advocates working in other fields where we had some commonality there. Is we need to be making those linkages. What does eating disorders have to do with workplaces? What does it have to do with food security, uh, economic parity, uh, economic equity. What does it have to do with all of these other issues so that we could use these relationships, these bonds to further policy changes that were going to make a difference for us? I think that's one of one of the things that's held us back as being too insular. And I think that's changing now. It's mm -hmm. changing now. And we're so much out into the world now. And that's certainly we're going to spend the rest of my career doing is really pushing on that, getting eating disorders addressed across the gamut of kinds of health and social justice issues that we see the country grappling with now. So as you've accumulated this experience and the, the data, Bryn, how does that crystallize into the big idea that you would like to share with us today? Yeah. What I've learned from my many years now, more than 20 years working in the eating disorders prevention area is that we need to be thinking about prevention much bigger, much, and much broader. Uh, it was probably about 10, 12 years into my career where I, it dawned on me We've got wonderful, talented people in our field working on prevention, but all of it is really about making kids more resilient or people more resilient, but mostly focused on young people, making them more resilient to a toxic environment. We had so much research documenting all the ways that the media environment, social environment, sometimes family environments were toxic to kids around body image, around food and activity that can increase the risk of eating disorders. So what we had in the first generation of prevention programs was making kids resilient to that toxic environment. Hmm. What I often to say to people is if we were in the, another field environment, we were thinking about pollution, whether it's from wildfires from Canada or California, or it's uh, smog from factories. If we were talking about pollution, in our environment, we wouldn't just issue uh, gas masks to all the kids at school and say, oh, go out and play at recess. Here's a gas mask. We wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. We, of course, would not want anyone to have to breathe in that air. However, we would be working to clean up the air, we'd clean up the environment. If it's polluted water, polluted air, other ways that, that the environment is unsafe, we focus on cleaning up that pollution. We got to do the same thing with eating disorders. We have a toxic social environment, and that extends through policy, the consumer marketplace, media, social media, so many ways that our environment is toxic and contributes to the high rates of eating disorders we have. 
that's where we need to focus our targets for change. That's where I'm planning to dedicate the rest of my time. It's is, is certainly the way I've been focusing our research over the last decade. And that's the direction I think we need to go. That's what really brings us head on with needing policy change. So that's sort of a big, bad idea, right? That's bold uh, that you're saying, and and I 150% agree with you, but it is bold, right? And it, And I think it's really important to underscore what you've said, which is that we're really, I think across many areas, beginning to understand that we need to move away from imagining that the problem is in the person and we just need to make the person more resilient, somehow fix the person, like you say, and move to more structural, systemic understandings of the landscape and the environment. And your example of the pollution in the air is so vivid and applicable, really, really powerful. So Bryn, can you give me an example of something that in our environments and where policy has really made a difference in terms of shifting a focus to the environment? Yeah, let me give you an example of what I mean by how we need to focus on these toxic pressures in the environment. Perfect example is diet pills, over-the-counter diet pills sold in every store, sold in gyms, sold online now. Mm-hmm. You know, where this this uh, idea came to me was through a collaboration with a, a colleague. I had done, as part of my dissertation, I had done some work on the risk of young people starting to use over-the-counter diet pills uh, when they're exposed to pressures around body image. You have to be thin at all costs, that kind of thing. I was talking about this with a uh, presenting it to a colleague who worked in public health law in a different area around food law and food safety. She raised her hand in my talk. She's like, why can't we regulate these? If we can not sell tobacco to kids, why do we have to sell them diet pills? Mm-hmm. And that was a question I had never asked before. That connection had never occurred to me because I wasn't yet thinking about, oh, we can change the environment, not just make kids more resilient. And ever since then, never look back. So Uh we collaborated for years. And then since then, I've worked with many others in people who work in food law, um, people who work in um, uh, different aspects of consumer law, people who work in, in economics, lots of areas to find ways to target this consumer product. Now, this isn't gonna get rid of all eating disorders, clearly. The uh, uh, use of these kind of products is just one piece of it. But why do we allow these companies to profit in the billions off of the body insecurities, the mental health struggles, the weight stigma, weight discrimination? They are profiting every single day by selling their toxic and deceptive products to kids and people of all ages. That to me is the the definition of a predatory product that mm-hmm. we need to take on. Mm-hmm. So we've dedicated ourselves to bringing the research together to inform policy. And we do that by working with, we work with lawyers and legal scholars, we work with economists, we work with policymakers, and we work with communities, community mm-hmm. advocates around how, what is it gonna take to raise this issue on the agenda for policymakers and get change pushing back on this industry that has been profiting off of the suffering of so many in our communities. Mm-hmm. 
it um, makes me think about the most recent release of Ozempic, mm-hmm. which was, is FDA approved for diabetes treatment, right? But is associated with dramatic weight loss and now is being wildly prescribed in ways that are inconsistent with approvals for people to lose weight. And it's a, it's a slightly different issue because it's not an over-the-counter um, drug, but it's sort of like the medications for ADHD and the risks associated with misuse. Are there policy solutions to that or what does that apply here? Oh yeah, we're we're watching the Ozempic or the that uh, whole semiglutide um, collection of uh, pharmaceuticals now. They are all prescriptions, so it's a different issue. What what what's important about the difference is one: a twelve year old can't go in and fill their backpack with Ozempic. Uh huh. Can do that with these toxic over the counter diet pills. Uh, the other the other issue is uh, that there are. Of tighter controls on prescription meds. So we're watching it, but we, we've known, it was a year ago, right after this came out, I had a colleague who works in an, another field actually, but reads Reddit, is on Reddit, the social media platform a lot. And she said, Bryn, did you, have you seen what's happening on Reddit? They created whole subreddits. Those are the community, sub-communities on Reddit to basically share ways to game the system and trade in eating disordered ways of using Ozempic. And they're getting it from their doctors, they're getting it prescribed or they're buying it online. Uh, that that was you know a wake up call that something like this could be dropped into the market and just get out of control so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That is an issue that we're watching. We're not working in that area yet because it's prescription meds, uh, but it's something that policy, certainly there can be tighter controls on how it's prescribed. But another driver for this is the intense and largely unchecked weight stigma and weight discrimination we have in this country. When people people are have so much pressure on them to lose weight or not gain weight, sometimes it's their job. Sometimes it's a promotion. Uh, it can be many other ways that they are uh, excluded from society. Missed opportunities are treated, frankly, in a really dehumanizing way, or they're denied medical care because of their weight. That's a lot of pressure people are having to deal with. And Ozempic, for some people, was the solution they saw to that. The pharmaceutical industry was very happy to provide them with that solution, when what we need to be doing is addressing weight stigma and weight discrimination at the root. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you look at the various activity around policy, what are some of the gaps that are most disconcerting for you? What are the areas where you think we should really be leaning into policy solutions in the coming years? Well, policy, there's so much of a need for better policy. And an area, another area we work, which is from a prevention frame of mind is around social media. Mm-hmm. So we've seen just exponential growth, as we all know, and we've experienced in social media, internet, Uh, and access to that and kids access to that really jumped up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the social media, the, the, the big tech industry has put in place in the U S very strong laws protecting them 
and protecting them to do whatever they want to make profits, no matter the consequences. They got these laws on the books well before we were able to see just how devastating some of their practices are to child mental health and child well-being. Well, there's been a growing movement, a lot of pushback to try to get really saner regulation on the books in the U.S., to be able to rein in social media in a way to protect children first and foremost. We've seen increasing state legislatures considering a wide range of legislation and passing bills. Some of the bills uh, that have been signed into law, I would not say are particularly evidence-based, probably won't stand up in court and might even be dangerous in other ways. But some of the work that's being done is very smart, really thoughtful about How do we connect the evidence of how kids are being harmed to changes that can protect children from how social media is just infiltrating their lives in so many ways? That's an area just today. I had an hour-long conversation with a lawmaker in my state about our recommendations on what our state can do and what we're hoping other states will do to create saner, safer regulation, really to for the protection of children, children's well-being. The discussion around social media is going to be one that will be intense and dynamic for uh, the foreseeable future, given how technology continues to evolve. Um, really important. I, it also comes to mind for me, Bryn, one of the other big public health concerns today is climate change. Where does that intersect with the policy work that you're doing around prevention and eating disorders? Climate change is another arena where we really need to be at the table and working with others who are focused on the fossil fuel industry or they're focusing on agribusiness or they're focusing on the international trade policies that are creating deficits and food supplies while also supporting the ultra-processed food industries. Um, What is becoming more and more clear is the way that climate change has cascading effects that can worsen eating disorders, interfere with people's ability to get treatment for it, increase the risk of eating disorders. One example I'll give you has to do with the the island of Kiribati and the country of New Zealand. On the island of Kiribati, they are one of the the, uh, islands that's that's anticipated to be submerged onto the ocean ocean, uh, the soonest of, of large populations. Uh, That puts a lot of, there's a lot of economic pressure for out-migration from Kiribati to neighboring countries to work, to leave the island, to uh, be able to support families or get people off of the island. Well, countries around there where it might be a place to be able to immigrate have policies on the books restricting who can come in based on weight, based on other kinds of health conditions that can keep people from being able to come in and work in order to find a way to still survive for their families despite climate change. Well, when there are weight restrictions on who can come into a country, that puts the most intense pressure on people to then try to manage their weight uh, in a way, manage their weight in a way to be able to have economic opportunity. That's an extreme way with climate change. We already we're seeing that happening around the issue of weight discrimination in so many other arenas without even factoring in the layer of climate change where people have so much pressure to take on eating disorder behaviors in hopes that's going to give them economic opportunity. Our economy should never be structured in a way that people have to risk their lives 
in this way, develop an eating disorder just to get a job, just to have some economic opportunity. Bryn, the data on Kiribati are really interesting. How did you learn about this and how does it how did it fit into your overall program of research to come to know what was happening there? My colleague Ann Becker is the one who shared this information to me. It was not something I knew anything about, but it's but it's something that she'd been doing a lot of work in. She was very quick to be able to see ways that climate change were affecting eating disorders, uh, increasing the risk of eating disorders, making care more difficult. She's the one who made those connections. So I'm grateful to have learned about that from Anne and was quite shocked to learn that. Bryn, you've taken us around the globe and highlighted ways that there we're seeing intersection of other public health issues like climate change and its impact on eating disorders. It's a really dynamic field. You're leaning into many issues. What would you, if you could wave your magic wand and say you're going to get one policy passed in the next five years, is there one that comes to mind right away? You know, if I could make one change with a with a, a magic wand, it wouldn't be a single policy. It would be a, a, a change in mindset and focus for scientists to get involved in policy and democracy. Mm-hmm. What One of the biggest threats to public health, threats around eating disorders and so many mental health and physical health issues has to do with the 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 rapid transition of governments toward autocracy, toward uh, oppressive governments that are not including science in making decisions, that are not uh, ensuring basic rights for people. Authoritarian governments are rising around the world. As scientists, we can't just sit back and say, that's not our purview. We have to be there. We have to be part of these efforts to protect democracy and to make sure that policies are based on evidence. No policies will ever be based on evidence if we are not at the table. Others can't do it in the way that we can. They have to be at the table too. Community advocates with lived experience, experienced policymakers have to be at the table, but there will not be evidence-based policy unless the scientists, us, we have to be there at that table too. That's the change. If I could, if I had a magic wand to wave, it would be to be able to train a whole new generation of scientists who are willing and able to engage in policy, protect our democracy, to to protect our planet, and basic rights for everyone. That's so powerful. And having co-directed a policy fellowship for many years, it resonates. It rings so true. Bryn, we have researchers who come into the policy fellowship And in short order, their understanding of impact and how to to do research that translates into meaningful effects in the communities where they passionately want to have meaningful impact changes. And research programs are transformed once there's this bridge that's built and an understanding around where research fits into policymaking and what you need to know about policymaking to do research that matters. So powerful. We are so lucky 
to mm-hmm. have you in the field of eating disorders championing this work of policymaking and addressing the public health at a public health level, how we change systems, how we address systems, how we lever, use the lever of policy to really change the environments that we live in so that the default settings are healthier for the greatest number of people. Thank you so much, Bryn, for the work you're doing. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure.